gave a sermon just recently about uh, especially third tithe and that we're going into a third tithe year the way we calculated. And uh, it spawned, spawned some questions and uh, some had asked for a meeting, which we had last night, to discuss various aspects of it and what does the Scripture really say here and there. And we went from there into some other things, which I felt made it a good idea maybe to cover some of that ground again for everyone and point out uh, some specifics in terms of, uh, of what the Scripture actually says and put some of them together a little better. But at the same time, one of my main uh, hot spots kind of came toward the end of that meeting where I uh, had remembered some thoughts that I've had in the past in terms of God's financial system and the federal government's financial system, along with the states and the counties and the cities' financial systems. And how do we correlate these together? How do we uh, handle the high taxation we have. Now, you have a fairly high uh, income tax ratio or percentage in this country, depending on how much money you make. And then we have at least, oh, roughly 40 cents a gallon for gasoline that we pay at the pump every time we pump a gallon of gas. It goes up and down with states, I guess, but the feds and everything together, it's at least that much. And maybe it's well, it's probably even higher now that the prices of fuel have gone up because it's probably based on the sales price of the fuel. <clears throat> Maybe it's just a flat tax on the... But never, nevertheless, it's very high. And you pay sales taxes and excise taxes and it just goes on and on and on. And sometimes we're paying taxes on top of taxes. It got so bad in Norway, which is a very socialistic government, where... Whatever you earned, you paid 90% taxes on. That left you 10% for the rest of everything. Of course, they provided uh, housing and medical and all kinds of social services, but you only saw 10% of your income. Now, how are you going to tithe, first, second, and third tithe, on your gross income, when you get 10%, in some years that comes to 30%. The math simply cannot and does not work. Now, how do you handle those things? How did the church handle that one in the past? And how should we handle the situation we have in this country, more importantly at this point, so that we can survive financially in spite of everything that is there? Now, I want to go back through and examine a little bit about God's financial plan for mankind, which he lays out in the Old Testament and which is modified somewhat in the New uh, because of a change in administrations and so on. But it's very important we understand what God laid out and why he laid it out for mankind. And I am quite sure the system that he laid out is what will be in the millennium. Uh, it is what God intended for Israel, and it is the entire financial plan that includes any kind of tax, any kind of government costs, any kind of needs that people might have. 
It is a complete plan, and it should be all that we need. So we need to look at it from the standpoint of God's view and what He requires of us and have the attitude of God is in heaven, God created me, God made laws and regulations to guide life in every way, and look at some of the Psalms, which we're doing in the series I started, but am truncating or at least uh, getting away from today. <clears throat> we need to look at those Psalms in some cases, such as the one we sing, Oh, how love I your law, it is ever with me, your commands make me wiser. And on and on the song goes, showing how much David loved the laws of God. Now, which laws? Well, I guess you'd have to say all of them. Some people say none of God's laws are in effect. Some say some of them are. I heard an anecdote just the other day about from years ago in Worldwide where one of the ministers went to a house and this man was doing all he could to convince the minister that the law is done away. And that was the man's statement. You know, he was some kind of a Protestant, I don't know. But he said, the law is done away. The minister says, well... That's, that's nice that you shared that information and understanding with me. I'll be by to pick your wife up at 6.30. Excellent line. Well, wait a minute. No, you said the law is done away. Now, is it or isn't it? <laughs> Put him right on the spot. We are to live by every word of God. This whole book as he lays it out. Now, some of it is sometimes difficult. In fact, a lot of it is difficult, isn't it? And we have to understand that and know and live with the idea that it is not easy in this world today to try to live by God's laws, and his financial laws certainly come within that. But our whole mood and attitude, if we have repented and we have vowed to make a commitment to God and to His ways, we need to be seeking every way we can to find a way to fulfill His wishes, His laws, His statutes, His judgments in the very best way we possibly can because we want to please Him, we love Him, and we want to be a part of His kingdom forever and ever in a time where there will be no tears, no sorrow, no pain, no death, no suffering whatsoever. So we have to go through many trials, troubles, afflictions, difficulties in this life to build character, to show God our loyalty, our conviction, and our commitment to Him. And if we do that, then He is very lovingly desirous of giving us life eternal in His kingdom. So, any time we approach the Word of God, we need to do it with that type of attitude. Uh, not try to find our way around or through or over or whatever, and I'm not saying anybody is. I'm just saying, 
let's be sure that when we look at scriptures that might be difficult or uncomfortable for us, hard to keep or whatever, that we are looking at it from a positive standpoint. That this must be good, therefore, or God would not have put it before us. Even though it might not seem good to us at the time, or we might not understand, or whatever the situation might be. Now, let's go back uh, to Leviticus 25. The question had come up, and I want to approach this from a, a standpoint of context and the overall picture, along with other questions, so that we can establish what God has done and why He has done it. Therefore, we might better understand it. And the better we understand something, the easier it is to find a way to get in line with it, if you follow what I'm saying. We're afraid of uh, things we don't understand. We often reject something we don't understand. And therefore, we need to understand what God is saying and why He's saying it because it's easier then to embrace it and to deal with it. But the question came up about the cycle of years and how God established it, how Israel did what they did. You can read Josephus, and he talks about the, third, about the, uh, the sabbatical years and how the third and the sixth were set aside for third tithe. The seventh was a sabbatical, and he says that's the way they did it. Now, somebody also had a Masoretic text, and in the note in the column, it said that they kept uh, the second tithe for two years in a row, and then the third year was the second tithe was turned into third tithe or a welfare system for others, so second tithe wasn't kept every year. Now, there may have been some of the Jews doing that. I don't know. Uh, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, all these different factions of the Jews did things a lot differently. And they did introduce doctrines of men rather than the doctrines of God. So when we're reading history, we have to kind of take into account the bias of whose history it is that we're reading. Because they can be different. And some groups may have done it this way. For instance, the Passover... Uh, is a good example. Some of them kept it all together, as we do here. Others kept it separately in their homes. The original intent was take three or four families or whatever it took to eat a lamb, one big family, uh, and kill each family killed the Passover. We find that there was some change in that, even in Scripture, where they were doing it together. So, uh, the different groups of Jews did some things in different ways. So that leaves us really where, for our final authority, that would have to be this book, because you can't depend entirely upon anything that has been written by someone other than God. <clears throat> so let's understand, as, a, as an overall viewpoint, God's financial system and how it is set up and what it intended and I think we'll find the clues in the Scripture itself. Uh, I understand it better now than I did a few days ago, uh, having looked at it some more and answered a few questions. Uh, how do we get this third and sixth year, seventh year? Uh, is it every third year? What, what is it? Here in Leviticus 25, this is a review. I think we came here the other day. Speak to the children of Israel... And say to them, when you come into the land, 
understand they had been slaves. They had just simply been doing what they had been told. They had lost sight of God. They didn't even know which God was being talked about. And God brought them out of there and introduced himself to them. And he promised that he would take them to a good land. They murmured and complained and didn't like what was going on. So he made them wander 40 years until their carcasses dropped. And then he took their children in. So God was setting this up to bless Israel in a land of milk and honey and to give them a system that would remove poverty as much as it can be removed, would bless everyone, and the mistakes could be mitigated by the system. So he says, when you go into the land, you shall keep a Sabbath to the eternal. Six years you shall sow your seed, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit year thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So this is something you do for God. He gave you this land, and He wants you to rest it every seventh year for the land's sake. And as we shall see, that we might also look to Him and walk in faith. And everything in God's Word essentially is to teach us to walk in faith and in love and in service to Him and our brother. Because the whole law is summed up in love God in heaven and love your brother on the earth. That sums up this whole book. But everything written in here is pointed toward that. So his financial system is also pointed at taking care of what God gives us, the land, and taking care of each other, and making sure that everyone prospers and is taken care of. So the law, as summed up by Christ, has to be reflected in the financial laws and everything else that he sets up. So the first thing he says is, you let the land rest every seventh year. That which grows of its own accord, verse 5, of your harvest, you shall not reap, neither gather the grapes of your vine undressed, for it is a year of rest to the land, and the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you, for you and for your servant and for your maid and for your hired servant and for the stranger that sojourns with you. For your cattle, for the beasts that are in your land, shall all the increase thereof be food. Now, he adds a layer to this. And you shall number seven Sabbaths of years to you, seven times seven years. And the space of the seventh Sabbath of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Makes it clear. Then shall cause, you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound in the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement, shall you make the trumpet sound throughout the land. Now, you have then seven years, the seventh being a Sabbath, land Sabbath. You repeat this seven times in a row, 49 years. Then you have a 50th year, which is set aside by the blowing of trumpets for a special use. This is going to become important. In the eternal 
spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, verse 34, The fifteenth day of this seventh... Oh, no, wait a minute. How do, where did I get there? I'm supposed to be in chapter 25. I went back to 24. Okay, verse 10 of, of 25. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you. What does jubilee mean? Perhaps the word came from here, but it means excitement. It means liberty. Uh, when people are jubilous, to use a word, or jubilant, I guess that's a word for sure, uh, they're happy, they're fulfilled, they're having fun. This is to be a special year that comes every 50 years. And you shall return every man to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be to you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which grows of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of your vine undressed. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy, and you shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. And return every man his possession. Uh, and if you sell anything to your neighbor, or buy anything of your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy of your neighbor, and according to the number of years of the fruits, he shall sell to you. So it isn't really a sale so much as it is a lease, and based upon whether there's 40 or 30 or 20 years left until the next jubilee, you'll have the use of it. So if you have the use of it for 48 years, it's worth more than if you have the use of it for only two years at the end. Now, I'm not going to read necessarily all of this, but it has to do with the land as well. The land goes back to the original owners. Now, when Joshua went, went, took the people into the promised land, they divided the land up, and it was divided by tribe, and then it was divided by family. So that land was to belong to that family forevermore. Now, if you chose... Maybe you had bad health or bad management of money or whatever, and you needed money, you could lease that out for whatever was left in that jubilee cycle to someone else. But at the end of the 49 years, on atonement, beginning the 50th year, <clears throat> your family would get all the land they had had back. If you had indentured yourself as a servant or a slave to someone else because you poorly managed things, and therefore had to become a slave, you were given back to your family at the Jubilee. Everything was returned to the original family. So whatever wrongs, whatever mismanagement, whatever had occurred in that 50 years was resolved and went right back to the original every 50 years. What a beautiful system. So that... No family was ever forevermore deprived, children, grandchildren, for the mistakes of one person. God fixed it every 30, 40, 50 years. Now, verse 18, Wherefore you shall do my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and you shall dwell in the land in safety. So in this financial system... God also throws in safety. I will protect you. I will take care of you 
if you'll do things my way. <clears throat> and the land shall yield her fruit, and you shall eat your fill and dwell therein in safety. So he's saying, I will bless you, and everything will be good for you if you will follow what I say. Now, there are other warnings in other places which say if you don't, then you'll be cursed, you'll go back into slavery, and so on. We have not used our land properly in this country, and we're about to go into slavery yet again. Everything is going to be taken away from Americans because of greed, because of oppression, because of interest, because of debt, because of all the things that were immorality. Everything you want to name that we do in this country essentially is against God's way. And God is going to take it away from us one more time. And most of us will die, roughly 90%. So God means it when he says, do it this way and you will be blessed and you will have safety. Do it this way and you're going to die. It's that simple. And if you shall say, <clears throat> what shall we eat the seventh year? He's flashing back not to the Jubilee here, but to the seventh the land Sabbath. Because what was just written could... Spawn a question, couldn't it? Well, what are we going to eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow, nor gather in our increase. It's a natural question. Not a bad attitude, just a question. <clears throat> then, God says, Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. Triple the crop. And you shall sow the eighth year, and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year, until her fruits come in, you shall eat of the old store. So when you plant on the sixth year, your crop will be enough for three years. Through the seventh year, the eighth year, when you would plant again, but then you have to wait till the end of that year, to the beginning of the ninth year, before you have the harvest to eat. So three years, he promises. Now, that's the way it's going to be in the millennium. We anticipate that God is going to give us back, shortly now, uh, more of the land, and he's going to make more Edenic conditions and give us everything that we need so that this will be taken care of. Meanwhile, he wants to see if we're going to do what we're supposed to do and then can have that kind of blessing. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Ambassadors, as the New Testament puts it, pilgrims, because we belong to God, and the land belongs to God, and he's going to return it to his people at some time. All right, now we've set up a 50-year window here that encompasses his whole financial system. And then he regulates it further, and let's understand that. Um, He mentions here in Deuteronomy 26, well, let's see, maybe I want to go to 14 first. Um, let's go to 14.
Well, let's, let's back from that. I was going to go there to explain the, the cycle, but maybe we should go back first of all uh, and pick up the idea. And I won't go to all the scriptures. It talks about the tithe going to the Levites, and we covered that last sermon, so I won't necessarily go back and review all that for sake of time. But God said the first tithe, or a tithe, is His. And He says then that He gives His tithe to the Levite, okay? And He says, bring all the tithe of your increase, of your fields, of your animals, of everything. Abraham even took the spoils of war and paid Melchizedek a tenth of that. So it is God's tithe. It's not the Levite's tithe. It's God's tithe, and God states it that way. And then he turns around and says, well, I don't need it, but I am going to give it to the Levite because he doesn't, they weren't given land. They were there to serve the people and do the sacrifices and all the things that the Levites were to do. So they were to to have that, and the New Testament shows that they who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So the same thing is in the New Testament. It's just administered differently, as Hebrews 7 shows, because now the ministry comes through Christ, a Jew, instead of Levi, a Levite, or Aaron, a Levite. So there's a change in the law, not a doing away, but a change in it. And then here in Deuteronomy 14... Uh, he says, verse 22, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your seed that the field brings forth year by year. Now, does English mean what English means? Year by year means every year in succession. Uh, the thought came, well, that's only year by year, that's only two years. No, that's not what the force of the sentence is. It's not what the force of English is. Year by year means year by year by year by year in a continual process. So this is something that is to be done year by year as each year goes by. And you shall eat before the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there. The tithe of your corn, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstlings of your flock, herds and of your flocks, that you may learn to fear the eternal your God always. Now, how is this different from what it says about God's tithe that he gives to the Levite? Back in that scripture, uh, my eye doesn't fall on it immediately, uh, but there's two or three of them that indicate this. It says you give all the tithe to God and turn it in to the Levite. All of it. Now here, <clears throat> it talks about a tithe that is done year by year that you take somewhere and what do you do with it? You keep the feast. So it is a different tithe. You don't give it all to the Levite. You keep it yourself. And you take it where God says. Now, if the way be too long for you, well, the, taking it to the Levite, if it were the first tithe or the God's tithe, uh, wasn't too long to go. But this is one where you took it year by year, and it says all 
the increase of your seed in verse 22, doesn't it? So for the Levite's tithe, it said all. So if you give all of a tenth to the Levite, then that's all of it, isn't it? It's not 3% or 6% or 9%, it's 10%, all of it. Tithe means 10%. And here's something that's saying you're to tithe all the increase of all of these categories. And you're to do something different with it. Well, it can't be talking about the same goods or money, can it? Because you did this with all of that, and now you're supposed to do this with all of this. So it's got to be talking about two different things. And you're to eat that before the eternal God. Now, if you gave all of it to the Levite, and you're supposed to eat it here, we've got to be talking about two different things. Verse 26, and you shall bestow that money. He said you can turn it into money if the way be too long to carry the wheat and corn and animals and everything else. Indicating, and, and there are other places which indicate that within the land, first he appointed uh, Shiloh, a couple of places, and then he settled on Jerusalem as the place that everyone was to come. And if they were too far from Jerusalem, then they could bind it up, turn it into money, and bring it. And when you got there, you shall bestow that money, this is year by year, all the increase of your seed, okay? Verse 22, tied with that. That money, all that tithe, year by year, is to be bestowed for whatsoever your soul desires, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, or whatsoever your soul desires, and you shall eat there before the Eternal, your God, and shall rejoice, you and your household. It's not something that you give all of to God or the Levite, but you are to take all of it there and rejoice with you and your household. He does include the Levite that is within your gates. You shall not forsake him, for he has no partner inheritance with you. So the second tithe was to be shared uh, there. So we're talking about two different things here. All your increase goes to the Levite, and then all your increase goes to keeping the feast. Now, verse 28 introduces another thought. At the end of three years, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase the same year, and shall lay it up within your gates. So this isn't every year or year by year. He's making a contrast. When he started talking about the festival tithe, or what we call second, he said all of that was to be kept year by year, year after year, for the festivals. This one is at the end of three years. And you don't go to the feast with it. You lay it up within your gates. And then it shows, not only is it different, one went to the Levite, one you kept and went to the feast, this one you laid up within the gates. One was for the Levites in use, one was for you and your family and the Levite in use, and this one on the third year was for whom? The Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, which are within your gates, 
shall come and shall eat and be satisfied that the eternal your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Now notice there that there's a blessing involved with this third year tithe. We'll see that again in another place in Deuteronomy 26 it is. And I want to read that before we're done. So the others don't show the same kind of blessing or a specific blessing that this one does. So it is done at a different time, it is for a different use, and the place of consumption is different in all three. One, the Levite takes home with him and uses. One goes to the feast. This one stays within the gates and takes care of a different class of people. So they are all different in every respect. Now it says the third year. Does that mean every third year? Because a question came up, well, does this mean that you keep second tithe for two years, and then the third year, you don't go to the feast, but you take that tithe and give it to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the Levite, and so on, and they go to the feast that year, and you stay home because you don't have any second tithe, you gave it all to them. Is that what this is saying? I didn't think of it during the meeting last night, but I thought of it as I was walking out, a little late. Uh, let's go to Exodus 23. And here in verse uh, 14. Three times shall you keep a feast unto me in the year. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you in the time appointed of the month Abib. For in it came you out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. So that's the first time or season. And the Feast of Harvest of the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. That would be Pentecost. And the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, end of the harvest year or financial year, when you have gathered in your labors out of the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the eternal God. This is every year. So, you don't stay home the third year and let somebody less fortunate go on your tithe festival tithe, all males are to appear three times a year before God. Uh, let's skip down. No, no, maybe this isn't the one I want. Let's go on to Deuteronomy 16 uh, and verse 16. Deuteronomy 16. Here he's running it down, showing the Passover, uh, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Weeks, and so on, and the Feast of Tabernacles. I won't go through all of those. He summarizes those and says, you'll keep those. And then in verse 16 he says, Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the eternal God, your God, in the place which he shall choose Unleavened bread, feast of weeks, feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the eternal empty. 
Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the eternal your God, which he has given you. Uh, I was waiting, I was looking for the one here where, maybe I overlooked it in, oh, well, no, here it is, verse 13. Because it's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, and it says, And you shall rejoice in the, your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are within your gates. So you're to go up to the feast. All the males are required. He does say that you can take the family and you can enjoy the feast at the feast site and shows the things you can do with it, which we just read. But if the way be too far or health be too bad or there's an oops pregnancy or whatever, uh, the whole family might not be able to come. But he said, all males shall appear. That's a commanded assembly of all males. So the point that I am working at getting across here is that there's no room for a year to year, one, two years, and then you take that same tithe the third year and give it to some who are less fortunate because here it says uh, that your son and your daughter your manservant and your maidservant. So here's out of your land, your extended community or family or village. Everyone is to go. You're to be sure that out of the produce, your manservant, maidservant, everybody was taken care of. The stranger, uh, some of them could stay. The stranger didn't necessarily need to go to the feast, but they could eat it within your gates. You were to be taking care of them. So if you were to be there every year, that idea of keeping the feast two years and letting someone else use your second tithe the third year can't work. And he clearly says the third year. You keep the second tithe, the festival tithe, and its purposes and where it's to be used year by year, every year. You then have every third year a different tithe, and it says you take all that tithe as well. Somebody had said, well, if that's all the tithe, then that's all you have to deal with. No, for the festival, I mean, for the Levite tithe, it said all the tithe, of, all the increase of your land. For the festival tithe, it said all the tithe. For this tithe, call it widow's tithe or welfare tithe or whatever you want to call it, it said take all of it as well. So it was not to be diminished in any way, whichever one you're talking about, but all of each is to be taken care of in its order and in its time. Now, if it's to be done every third year, just as the second tithe is done year by year, this is to be done the third year. Let's fit that into what we read in Leviticus 25 about the land Sabbaths, and the Jubilee. Now, you didn't plant in the sixth year. The land had a Sabbath. Therefore, there simply was no crop. So you have an off year. You don't produce first tithe because there's no crop. Well, you bite through the animals, but not through crop. You don't have second tithe of the crop because you didn't plant. 
And you don't have third tithe of the crop because you didn't plant in the sixth year. So there's nothing for the seventh year. So, if you do it every third year, you have a seven-year cycle, remember. So the third year, you're starting with year one, the third year you have the third tithe. And what we would call the sixth year of seven, which is three years later, third, another third, third year, we would call it six out of seven, you have it again. Then you have an automatic Sabbath, the seventh year. So the scripture itself is saying that in this cycle of years, you keep first tithe every year, you keep second tithe year by year or every year, and then every third year you have third tithe for a different purpose and kept within the gates. So that would equate to the third year of a cycle, the sixth year of a cycle, you have an automatic Sabbath, then you start to count again, one, two, three, four, five, six, every third year with a Sabbath exception. That's the way the Bible lays it out. So he lays it out actually pretty clearly here by time, by use, and by where. All three things are covered with each one of these. Now, how do you go to the Feast of Seventh here? All right, if you ask that question, it's the same thing that we just read about the sixth, seventh, and eighth year of the cycle. God gives you three times the crop the sixth year, so you're taking care of the seventh year. You plant the beginning of the eighth year, and you reap the crop by the feast of the eighth year. So you have, with given three times the increase in the sixth year, you have three years of first tithe, three years of second tithe, and you don't need third tithe. Well, you need it for the widow and the orphan and so on. It's taken care of. You have three times as much of that too, the sixth year. So you get three times everything the sixth year, so it carries you through until the next cycle starts after the Sabbath. So God has set it up so that the government is taken care of with 10%. All government. That's the way it ought to be. Now, do you see a government in the United States like that? Or in the world like that? No. 10% was to take care of all governmental needs. 10% was to take care of doing all of God's festivals in the way that he says do them. And why? Because those picture the whole plan of God and a time when there's no sorrow, no need, no want, no pain, no tears, no nothing but happiness and joy and peace and unity and all those things that the kingdom of God pictures. So God has us set aside 10% of our, of our income every year so that we might every year go through the feast cycle and rehearse the plan of God so that we never forget it. Because thy kingdom come is the first request we have in the model prayer. Our eyes always should be on the kingdom of God. That'll keep us out of a lot of trouble. It'll keep us from making a lot of mistakes if that is our focus and our goal. 
Now, would God have us just rehearse that two out of three years? No way. We need that every year to keep our focus on the kingdom of God. How quickly did Israel always depart from all of God's laws, including all the financial laws? Throughout most of their history, they never kept any of this. Because they would always rebel and be stiff-necked and rebellious and carnal and selfish and do things their way and have to go into captivity again. It's just been the way of it. He expects better of us in the New Testament with the Holy Spirit than what was performed in the past. That's why he upgraded to a new covenant with better promises and a comforter and help so that we might do all these things in a way that ancient Israel failed at. Well, the law didn't change, as Hebrews 7 didn't go away. It changed in administration, is all, from Levi to Judah to Christ and to the New Testament ministry instead of the Levitical priesthood. So that is the system God laid out. It also includes all the welfare system that any nation should ever need. Because if we're obeying the sabbaticals and the jubilee, there should be very, poor, very few poor. If we're keeping the land Sabbath and being blessed by God in the land of milk and honey that He promised, then there should be very few poor. And us keeping a third tithe, the third and the sixth year out of seven, should take care of all welfare programs. I didn't do the math, but that's roughly 3% or maybe even a little under per year of our increase to take care of the widow, the orphan, any in that type of need or in those circumstances. We pay far more than that to the U.S. government every year, not just for that, but for all kinds of things. You see, so you'll, you'll, if you do this system, this financial system, he says you will dwell in safety in the land. You won't need military. You won't need wars. You won't need all the cost of that. There are a lot of things you simply won't need if you'll obey God. Your young men won't be being killed and ladies now in war. You'll have peace and safety in the land. Now, if we obey God's laws, he says when he unleashes this thing again and takes this nation into captivity one more time before Christ returns, he will protect us out of it. He will give us a garden like Eden. He will restore the promises of the promised land. He's taking the bulk of the American people, having them killed after much pain and suffering, and he's taking a small group, a remnant of the church, and he says, I'm going to give you all the blessings of the promised land. I will be a wall of fire around you, a covert from the heat, I will take care of you. That's what he promises us if we will obey him when everyone else is going to go hungry and most of them die. And only less than 10% live through to the millennium. That's what's about to happen. So we have a leg up, if you will, if not two, by being given opportunity to do things God's way, the way it will be in the millennium, and he says that he will bless us if we so do. 
I promised you Deuteronomy 26. We went there once before. But I want to go back there one more time here because it talks again about the third tithe. I think most of us have settled in on first tithe, second tithe, the first. God gets His. That, that's a no-brainer, really, even though the Bible mentions it many times. Second's for us anyhow, so it's not a big deal, really. The third comes, and it can be difficult. It can be a trial. It can be a test of faith. It can help build faith. Because it's not there every year, and it's to be given to others for their help. That sometimes causes a certain amount of uh, nervous energy in us. Anyway, verse 12, When you have made an end of tithing all the tithes of your increase the third year. So, not part of it, but all of it. And this is the third year tithe being talked about here, not the first that is every year, or the second, which is year by year. This is the third year, which is the year of tithing. Well, we've already seen we tithe every year, so this must be a different or special year of tithing, see? It's something you don't do every year, but it's a, it's a third tithe year. We don't speak of a normal year as a year of tithing, because we do it every year. But we do speak of the third tithe year because it's different and it has to be counted. And have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within your gates and be filled. See, totally different use to different people than the others. Then you shall say before the eternal your God. So he says, do this and then talk to God. Now, I want us to understand that in what he says in these verses, God is well aware that this will be a difficult year. He knows that. He set it up that way on purpose. He could have had us pay three and a third percent every year, as Ted Armstrong suggested, but it would have destroyed the cycle and it would have destroyed the opportunity to walk in faith and trust God. Okay? What is our life about? The just shall live by faith. It is a learning process of learning to trust God in every way. So every third year, or third and, third and third years out of seven, he has us do this. Then he says, come before me and say, I have brought away the hallowed things out of my house, that money which I like for me. I hallowed it. I treasured it. My, that's been my 10% the last two years. And have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. You told me to do this. I have done it. I have not transgressed your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I'm remembering it, and I'm doing it. I have not eaten thereof in my mourning. In other words, this was a trial. This was difficult for me. Uh, I felt poorer this year than I do in a normal year. So I had a downcast or a mourning attitude or a difficulty. But I didn't do that. I didn't touch it. Neither have I taken away anything thereof 
for an unclean use. In other words, God tells us up here what it is to be used for. And if we use it for anything else that is unclean or unacceptable to God, nor given anything of it for the dead. Uh, they had some practices in Israel, and we won't go into all that, where sometimes they paid uh, for the dead. Uh, I don't know, it's a little unclear what it means, but it, that's not something we would do anyway, so it's neither here nor there. But I have hearkened to the voice of the Eternal my God, and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel, and the land which you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land that flows with milk and honey. So this is a special year set aside to do all the third tithe every third year, and God instituted it as a button to help us walk in faith, do what he says, and then be able to claim a special blessing for it. And remember we read about that blessing in Deuteronomy 14 briefly, but here he lays it out. Now when I mentioned this and read it last time, I had at least one person say, you know, that really gave me hope. It made me feel good that we could all do something together now. It's been individuals doing it based on their baptism or their understanding of the truth. So some people were doing it every year. But we decided to do it all together, as Israel did and as the law is laid out, so that as a family, collectively, we could do it together and then all go to God with the same thing and ask for this blessing on all of us. Now that, the synergy of that is greater than one person doing it in his own year and then asking a blessing on Israel. But if we do it in a united way, then we can all ask that blessing unitedly. And it would be nice to have a prayer at the Day of Atonement when the Jubilee was done and when the financial year ended. To have a prayer and give thanks to God and ask for His blessing. Now, what does atonement mean? Why did they end the Jubilee on atonement instead of uh, trumpets or Feast of Tabernacles? Because that means we have become totally at one with God. We have perfect freedom and liberty from all pain, all suffering, from all death. We've just been resurrected and are there to marry Christ and be His bride forevermore. Wow, what a day. So that's the day He proclaims liberty throughout the land and everyone's possession is returned and all debts are completely forgiven and we're not to oppress one another at all. It's a beautiful time. Somebody says, well, what if we do this all together and then... Somebody doesn't do it. What happens? Does God not bless us because one person didn't do it? Good question. We have examples in the Old Testament where Achan, for one, buried some of the things at Jericho, and then thousands of people died because of that sin until they went through and figured out where it was and who it was, and he was put to death, and then people quit dying. 
Now, God tells us in Ezekiel 33 that we'll all be punished for our own sin, not the Father for the Son or the Son for the Father, but each will bear his own burden. Now, that's a prophecy in Ezekiel. Now, how did God handle it in the New Testament? He didn't ask for a first, a second, and a third tithe every third year. But there came a time, because of severe drought conditions, that people were starving to death in Jerusalem. And the apostles saw fit to ask everyone to sell all they had and give ten tithes to the church. Now, I've heard people joke about people, new people coming in, and they learn about first tithe, then they learn about second, and then third tithe, and they're on, ooh, wow. And then somebody will come up and joke, well, have you heard about fourth and fifth tithe yet? Blow them away. Then smile big. So fourth and fifth will scare you, but what about a hundred? How about ten tithes? Sell your house, sell everything you've got, Turn it all in so that everybody may eat and no one will starve to death. God required that, allowed that, and backed that up there in Acts 5. I don't know that we'll come to that, but we could. When the economy of this nation collapses, we may not have any jobs, we may not have any Social Security, we may not have any income of any kind, and hyperinflation may destroy our currency so that it's worthless, and there will be. Now, we see this coming, and I think most of us have been laying up for it, knowing that it could occur, and I think that it shall. I would be surprised if we don't go through what Israel did when they came out of Egypt and go through the first of the difficulties, the plagues as they had then, with the rest of the nation, or with Egypt. And then God made a difference. And He's promised us He'll make a difference, but He doesn't promise exactly when. That's up to Him. So we might come to the point where no one has any income, and all we have is what we got. We're to share and share alike and make sure everybody eats. That's the beauty of this community or any community such like. God asked us to come out of Babylon, out of the cities, and dwell out here in the wilderness, the mountains, and the desert. And he said, I will take care of you when the time comes. I'm calculating here. During the feast, we started on the half hour, and I was trying to figure out when I'm supposed to be done. We start on the hour here, weekly Sabbath. The feast is still there. Even the hymns are still running through the mind some. Uh, so we got a little time left here because I want to co cover some other things. Now, we decided to do this at the feast uh, two years ago, and I had kind of forgotten. I, I looked up the information. Uh, I had it written down. And the best information I've been able to come up with is that the next Jubilee would occur in 2027. I've read different papers by different people, and this one was based on a, partly on a scripture in Ezekiel. Uh, 
and counting forward, and it, it's the most correct, if there's such a term, uh, that I have come up with from any source, is that perhaps the next Jubilee is 2027. That would place us this year, from atonement on, in the sixth year of the seven-year cycle. Uh, I was thinking for some reason, it, it kind of lost it, that it was the third year in the cycle, but no, it would be the sixth. Now, that doesn't mean Christ is coming in 2027. He says he'll cut it short and various other things. Uh, he's hidden that time, and therefore we don't know. But it may be that that is correct. And if we're going to align ourselves and keep the seven-year cycle, as is indicated, then it appears this is where we are in the cycle right now. Now, if we get better information on that, maybe that will change. But based on the, all the information I've been able to put together on it and the papers I've read, uh, that is the most likely so far. Could change. I'm not saying that that is the case, but it could be. So you've got to start somewhere. And this then would be, on that basis, the sixth year in the cycle and a third tithe year. Now, I understand this is difficult. We just read in Deuteronomy 26 that it is very difficult and that we might have some mourning. I can recite you hundreds of stories of people who have not been able to put a pencil to it and figure out how they would ever keep the third tithe. And yet they've gone into it positively and said, I will do this. I don't know how it's going to happen. But somehow it has. They've gotten blessings from here, a raise at work, uh, the, the motor didn't blow up. Uh, various things happened. Uh, maybe they had some healings and didn't have medical bills. Or maybe they, nobody got sick or broken armed during that time. They, they just... It worked. Now, if we go into it with a negative attitude, and I don't see how this is going to work, and are doubtful, and instead of an attitude of faith and positive approach, I don't know that God will bless that attitude. Did I finish the story? No, I didn't. About the drought in Jerusalem, I got a little bit off. Because the point of going there was, does God hold the whole group responsible if one doesn't do it. Ananias and Sapphira is the conclusion of that story. Sorry about that. Uh, they decided not to do as the apostles asked them. And the apostles did not cut their heads off or hang them. God struck them dead. No one else was struck dead in the congregation. Everyone else pooled their money or their goods and they shared alike and had all things in common, and everybody lived and everybody had enough to eat. Ananias and Sapphira did not eat anymore. They were all done eating. They didn't need food. So that part that they were going to give uh, went away, and they didn't have anything. So God held them responsible, as Ezekiel 33 says. So, if we're to do this collectively, I think there's hope in that, that if one or two don't do it, or reach in and, and misuse it, God will deal individually with them. Our sins, our faults, our weaknesses, God deals with us as individuals. He no longer makes the whole church suffer over the sin of one. 
So there is hope and encouragement and strength in that. So if we determine to do something and then do it and ask His blessing, He will bless the whole and He will take care of those who do not. It's the way He works. It's the way He shows us. Now let's get away from that because I want to to talk a little bit about governments of this world and the governments of man. See, God has set this system out, and it takes care of everybody. It takes care of the government. It takes care of rehearsing His feasts so that we are always reminded of His kingdom. And it takes care of any poor there might be. And in a bigger and longer overall sense, it takes care of all families and makes sure that they get their land back. And we're on the edge now of going into the promised land again. I think it's not just symbolic, or perhaps I'm trying to say it is symbolic, that we're living here just outside the Canaan Mountains. Time of trial, time of testing. How did these get named Canaan Mountains, and why did God put us here? More of that coincidence, I suppose. But there's too much of it to be coincidence. And we're poised at the edge of the Promised Land. I want to go in. I want to have those blessings that God has promised us. That's what we all came out here with a hope for. And as I said in the sermonette, maybe it's taken a little longer than we anticipated, but I've seen a pattern every three or so years, it seems, we have a movement forward. So there's some times where we mill around, some times when we don't have a specific thing that we're doing other than trying to grow and overcome and get ourselves prepared as the bride. And then we get a little restless and nervous and frustrated and so on, and why doesn't this happen? But that being aside, that's the way God has always done it. I don't know whether Moses ever got frustrated for 40 years out there in Midian or not. I don't know whether people got frustrated for 40 years wandering in the desert. Yes, I do. They murmured and complained and got frustrated. Well, why isn't God taking us to the promised land? Well, it wasn't his fault. Who murmured and complained? Who got frustrated? Who didn't think God was God? Who had trouble walking in faith? That's what this is all about. Faith requires doing what you cannot see an answer for. That's what faith is, Hebrews 11.1. 1. So God has set a third tithe here as a test and a faith builder. That's what it's for. Otherwise, he could have done it 3% a year or whatever. But he set it up this way so that it would be difficult, so that we would look at numbers and say, I can't do this, and then... He gets us through it, and He gives us a blessing for it. That's the way He set it up to work. Now, what about the world? The U.S. government has all kinds of taxes, as I mentioned in the beginning. They have, all, they have their own financial system, and it is designed, as we can see more clearly now, to take everything they can away from us and make us serfs and slaves once again. And God has said that that will happen. So they have rigged the system to take our money away from us. And they're doing it increasingly. 
The situation in Norway, how could you do God's system with that kind of government? Now, the church always taught that the wage earner, someone who worked for someone else, was to pay their tithe, all their tithes, on the gross rather than the net income. Not on the check that you got, but on the gross of what you supposedly earned. Now, there was, I think, an unfairness there because with a businessman, contractor, farmer, whatever, they were allowed to deduct all their expenses that were required to produce their income or their crop, but the wage earner couldn't do that. It was inequitable. Now, let me ask you a question. If the government charges you 20, 30, 40% of your income and goes and fights wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and wherever else they're going this week and they're imperialistic, try to take over the world, is that an increase to you? How are you increased by that? God said if you'd keep his financial system, he would protect you and you wouldn't need to fight wars. He said he would bless you and you wouldn't have need. So they do their utmost to take you away from God's system and cause you to give your money to fight wars and foreign aid and all kinds of things that they do with that money, including pocket a lot of it that they get from lobbyists and big corporations and so on, and they get rich over it and from it, and you get drained more and more. Now, Mr. Armstrong made a judgment in Norway that they did not have to pay on the gross <laughs> with a 90% income tax bracket. Now, I realize that is uh, unusual, but it's getting to be more and more that way. And it's getting to the point, we don't have money to live on. I think I am within the authority God has given me to make a judgment on this. And in some senses, that is the case. Remember how Paul said, the Lord didn't say this, but this say I about uh, divorce. When you had a, one in the church and one not in the church that God didn't call and said, you're not bound in those circumstances. And he said he had the Spirit of God, and that God backed that, and God indeed did by putting it in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 7. So it is Scripture now, and is accepted of God. Now, we saw last time that God has a difference in administration in the New Testament. It isn't Levitical anymore. It is Melchizedek, or Christ priesthood, and we're all spiritual Jews, not Levites, Gadites, Asherites, Ephraimites, or whatever. We're all spiritual Jews. And they administered things differently. I didn't mention this, it came to mind later, but did not Christ change some pretty heavy administrations? Where before they'd had the blood of bull and goats for sacrifices, he did away with that type of sacrifice. But he didn't do away with the law. He just changed it. Now, it was Christ's sacrifice instead of bulls and goats because bulls and goats couldn't forgive human sin. But His 
blood could. So he changed that whole system of sacrifice, got rid of it, and he became the one and only true sacrifice. But sacrifice is still there because it applies day by day for you and me and sins that we commit daily. We have a daily sacrifice. Emmanuel, our brother. We also sacrifice not an animal, but ourselves. Crucify the flesh daily, he says. The flesh does not die easily. It rises up every day to be dealt with. So we have Christ's sacrifice, and we are commanded to follow his example and be a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1, daily. So he changed the entire administration of sacrifice, didn't do away with the law of sacrifice, changed it. Didn't do away with the law of tithing, as Paul shows in Hebrews 7, but changed it from Levites to spiritual Jews. And with that come some different ways of doing things. The old covenant has changed to a better covenant. We still have a covenant. Covenants aren't done away with. We have a new one with better promises and more help through the Holy Spirit. So it's a totally different administration of what originally was, right? So, when Paul saw a change from the agricultural life to people living in the cities, which it was in his day, then they changed the way that they handled the tithe. They were still tithing. He still said we collect the tithe and can. But it was in terms of money from wage earners, mostly instead of from farmers, because most of the churches were in cities. So he changed the way that it was done, but the law was still there. So I think I'm on safe ground in saying we have to look at our circumstance and apply God's law and the principles of it so that we don't do violence to His way, but if we're going to do violence to anything, do it to the world's way, to Satan's way. So, if doing what the federal government requires of us makes us look at the way we tithe a little differently... So be it. And I do believe that you cannot count what the government takes away before you ever see your check as increase. How does it increase you? You don't spend a dime of it. So I think we should, without a conscience problem, change from what Worldwide said and pay on the net instead of the gross. Now, what you do increase, you still tithe on. So if it's on, on the check you get, or the money you receive, you tithe on that. Now, if the government gives you part of that back when you pay your income taxes in April, that was money that they took out that you didn't tithe on, so you would then tithe on your refund because it had not, it is increased that you did not get until April, and you did not pay tithe on it because you paid on the net. So you would take it out at that time, because it is at that point increased to you, so you would owe tithe on it. Now that brings us to another thing about the farmer and the contractor that I was getting to, and that is, 
Let's say you are a farmer, and you plant a crop, and at the end of the year you get $100,000 for that crop. Do you pay 10000 tithe? No. You had to buy seed, you had to buy fuel, you had to buy a lot of things to produce that crop. Fertilizer, whatever. So you deduct those costs that you paid out, and then you take your sales price and subtract the costs from the sale, and what is left is your increase. You might only increase by 20000 or 30000 whatever. But that's all you tithe on. Same with a building contractor. Signs a contract to build a house for 100000 That's a joke. Let's say 100000 to keep it simple. And you sell that house after you build it for 100000 Do you tithe on that? No. You had to buy two-by-fours and shingles and carpet and everything. So that house may have cost you 80000 to build. So when you sell it for 100000 you only had an increase of 20000 So that's what you tithe on. Now that makes sense, because what is the true increase? Only that which is an increase to you after expenses. But, at the same time, the church always said, well, the wage earner, maybe they didn't trust wage earners, I don't know. The wage earner couldn't deduct any of the costs of making their living. Let me give you an example. If a farmer's tractor breaks, he drives 30, 40, 50 miles to town and buys a part and takes it home and fixes his tractor. Part of his cost of producing his crop is the part. Part of the cost of producing his crop is the fuel it took to go to town and buy the part. So he deducts all of that because it's part of the cost of the crop. Without that part, the tractor didn't work. So that is a cost. Now, the wage earner, you sitting right here, don't have many jobs next door. You drive 30, 40, 50 miles to work. Now, you have to drive there or you won't work. Now, is that a cost of producing your increase? Yes, it is. Notwithstanding past doctrine. I see no problem with you deducting the cost of fuel to go to work, back and forth to work daily, from your paycheck. Before you tithe. Now that lowers the income of the church. I don't care. Okay? We're not here for numbers or money. It is only fair if the farmer and the contractor do it, and the carpet layer, he has to buy tax strip, you know, on and on it goes. Any business you're in. It costs you money to go to work and earn that check. So a reasonable amount of your car expense and a reasonable amount of your fuel should be deducted before you tithe. I think if it's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. The contractor and the farmer can do it, you can do it. Why should there be a difference? Now, there's a consideration here. There is always the opportunity for abuse. I've heard some people say, well, I don't owe any tithe because I don't have any increase. If I'm going to work, I have to have a house to stay in. 
or I'll have pneumonia and I, I can't work. I need a bed to sleep in because if I don't get my rest, I can't work. So that's a business expense. And if I don't eat, I won't have the energy to work, so that's a business expense. And if you want to reason that way, pretty soon, everything is a business expense, even the movies, because if I don't relax, you know, I, I can't work. I, I need some downtime, and so that's a business expense. You can get stupid real easy and greedy and, jealous and selfish. So if we open this box, we need to be sure that we are honest with God and honest with ourselves and only take those things which are legitimate costs of us going to work and doing our job. It's easy to abuse it and to begin to think wider and wider. But we're dealing with Almighty God now. We have to keep that in mind. We're dealing with His laws. We're dealing with His financial system. We can take the burden of the government somewhat off our back because it is never any increase to us, a lot of it anyway. And that allows us to more freely keep God's law instead of paying the piper with man's law. So it is easy to abuse. Second tie, the same way. God says to take that money to the feast and spend it on whatever your soul desires there for food and drink and to enjoy the feast. But some people have decided that well, I'll have my engine overhauled all with second tithe so I can go to the feast. I will buy a different car with second tithe so I can go to the feast. Do they then not drive it the rest of the year? What happened to prorating? You know, I use it for the feast three times in a year for a total of about 15 days, 16, 17. And the rest of the time, I use it for personal use. So take out 16 out of 365, and maybe you could spend that much second tithe on it. But it's an abuse to do all those things for the feast and use it the rest of the year. I've heard of people stocking their whole liquor cabinet for a year with second tithe. That is an absolute abuse. You're supposed to eat, and well, you probably should buy a beef or two also with second tithe at the feast. And that way, you know, you could eat it the rest of the year and you could drink liquor with it too. No, that second tithe is not for year-round. It's not the money to use to buy the kids' school clothes with or buy your wardrobe for the next year because, I'm, well, I'm going to wear it at the feast. That's not the spirit and intent of the law. He wants us to be able to travel, to eat and drink like we were in the kingdom of God with anything we desire to have to eat during those three seasons of the year because it pictures the plan of God and the kingdom of God. That's the point of it. Not to wait till the feast and say, well, now I'll spend it all on me for the rest of the year. That is just going contrary to the purpose that God earmarked it for. <coughs> so, consider your real increase. And there's one other thing I'm going to mention very quickly here. And that is our system of debt in this country. Now, I've been preaching for years and years that God tells us to get out of debt and not go into debt. 
And we've drug our heels. We've been part of the American system. And if we have a want or a need or whatever, it's just so easy to whip out that plastic. It's so hard to tear it up and pay off our bills and not go there. If we can't afford it, don't do it. God tells us we're not to be borrowers, but we should be in a position to be lenders as a nation and as a people. Now, when you've got a bunch of debts and a credit card or two or five or ten to pay and car payments and all this kind of thing, you are making the third tide year harder on yourself. Because if you were and had been denying yourself things that you wanted, you know, Americans think we think we deserve iPods and iPads and all kinds of things today that you can't live without, have to have it. If we made ourselves, discipline ourselves to only take those things that we need and can afford and get rid of all our debt, then when these things came up, we wouldn't blame God for giving us a hard system because we would have gotten our house in order and we would be prepared for it. Now, I know it's a little late at this point to be saying that, but it's a good time to say it since we're facing it. And I've been saying it for years and years, over and over, and yet our alligator rear end overcomes our canary brain. Maybe you can understand what I just said. I know you don't like to hear this. Because things we need to hear, we don't like to hear. But we need to discipline ourselves. Sometimes you can't afford a vacation because you have responsibilities. Some foods you can't go to an exotic place to buy because you can't afford them. Maybe sometimes we have to eat beans and homemade wheat bread, or whatever. And we don't need to go to Trader Joe's or Big Vic's or whoever to get things that are exotic that we think we like that cost more and use the excuse that it's health foods. There are cheap health foods you can buy. And you don't have to travel a long way when you can't pay your bills and take vacations you can't afford and still keep your responsibilities up. Now, I'm not against eating food we might enjoy, and I'm not against vacations at all. I am only against those things when we can't afford them and do them anyway, and then can't pay our bills. Now, I feel God has truly blessed us, and that He's brought us out here. Nobody has a house mortgage. You don't have a house payment. Your land payment is almost nothing. And our taxes are very low compared to everyone else pretty much in the nation. Very low. I've had one person try to tell me, well, we didn't have any taxes where we came from on our house. Yes, you did. If you had a mortgage, you paid real estate tax. Because they have PITI, PITI, Principal Interest Taxes and Insurance. And your bank or your mortgage, your loaner, lender 
charges, all those things, and they're rolled into the payment so you don't notice it or know it's there, but it's there. There is not one piece of real estate in this country that does not have real estate tax. Sorry. And ours is very low compared to most of the nation. So God has brought us to a situation. Now, jobs are harder, but nearly everybody's working. But then our cost of living is not high. We have to budget. We have to manage. We have to get out of debt. Then God's system works better, and we have to mitigate the government as much as we can. Another question, I, I'm out of time, but I'm going to hit one more, and that is, well, the government has welfare programs, and they take our money, and then they use it for the widow and the orphan and so on. It is not my job to go there. It is my job to preach the Word of God and teach what true increase is and what God's financial system is. Then we are to do our best to get in line with that, to count our blessings, to look to God who made heaven and earth, who made us, who made milk and honey and everything good in the land, and look at Him to take care of us. We're His children. And ask Him daily, Father, give me my daily bread. He tells us not to be anxious about what we'll eat or what we'll wear. So if we worry and complain about what we're going to eat or somebody else is going to eat, it is showing a lack of faith, is what it is. Because He said, trust me and come daily and ask me and I will take care of you. But if you worry and you fret and you complain and you murmur, he will not. So he will make it possible somehow for us to keep his financial system. And I could not, I don't know how you'd ever do it, to go into what the U.S. government does with the money they take from you and what they use it for. And do, does it go to the designated ones that Scripture says it is to go for? How could you determine that? Better to pay on your net. Let them do with the taxes as they will. And we obey God. That's what we're here for. That's what His promises are about. Put me first. Trust me. Don't worry. Don't get anxious. Pray daily for the things you need and I will take care of you. And if we do that with the right attitude, we'll get tried, we'll get tested. Third tithe will always be a more difficult year than the others. And God said so when He instituted it. You'll have time of mourning. You'll have time of more need than you normally have. But it's there to teach you to walk in faith. Remember, the one thing that He said above anything else, will I find on this earth when I return? Will I find faith? The just shall walk by faith. Trusting God is what it's all about. So he has set the system up to cause us to have to trust him. Or disobey and trust in the arm of man or some other system or some other way than his way. And Satan and his governments are setting things up to try to get us away from God's way. So all I can do is teach what God says.
And then we need to find a way to obey our Creator the best we can in every aspect of life. So that when He comes, He'll say, you trusted me, you did what I said, enter the kingdom. That's what, it's, that's what this is all about. We need to find a way to be sure that we do things God's way.